This week on Wealth Track, an exclusive interview with recently retired great investor Dennis Statman. Lessons learned from nearly three decades of running the BlackRock Global Allocation Fund. Next on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective. Ku and Patricia Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences. Rosalind P. Walter and the Fairholme Foundation. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. 30 years ago, investing globally was not a mainstream Wall Street pursuit. Most American institutional and individual investors were content to search for opportunities in the U.S., by far the world's largest economy with the biggest and most liquid markets. That's when this week's great investor guest and a business school classmate and friend decided to launch not only a global fund, but a global allocation fund that would invest in a wide range of assets, including but not limited to stocks, bonds, and currencies. It was a pioneering idea which turned into a highly successful and widely emulated product. This week's guest is Dennis Statman, who until August of 2017 was the senior portfolio manager of BlackRock's Global Allocation Fund, which he co-founded at Merrill Lynch in 1989 and for most of the last 20 years was its lead portfolio manager. Since its inception, this flexible global multi-asset fund has delivered annualized total returns of nearly 10%, beating global stock market returns with one-third less volatility. Under Statman's leadership, it also earned a gold analyst rating from Morningstar for its best-of-breed strategy, management team, stewardship, and culture. Its value-oriented, risk-averse, eclectic global approach also resonated with investors. Assets under management topped $80 billion at one point. I asked Statman to take us back nearly 30 years. Why create a global allocation fund? Well, there were two big factors behind the creation of global allocation. One of them was an event, and that was the 1987 stock market crash. And we look back at that, and by we, I mean my partner, Brian Eisen, and then the executives at Merrill Lynch Asset Management, Norman Harvey and Arthur Zeichel. And the four of us wanted a mutual fund that would adjust its asset mix to try and balance risk and reward better than traditional mutual funds had balanced risk and reward. And the other thing was that we wanted a fund that was global in scope because we saw the opportunity set for investing as global. And there weren't many funds back then that did it. And so combining the flexibility to go across at asset classes, across geographies, and across the capital structure, we thought gave people the best combination of opportunity and risk that we could design into a mutual fund. So if you were to design a global allocation fund today, would it be any different, or how would you do it differently? It would be actually very similar to the design that we put in place back in 1989. And uh, that was, the purpose was to create a fund that would be a core holding for a broad range of clients. 
and would balance risk and return so that people would get a competitive return, but with less risk than they would get in, say, an equity-only fund. And explain how you get, how you've succeeded in getting a competitive return with less risk uh, than, than you would get in a, in, a, in a stock fund. I mean, how do you balance that so that you can, you can get a return yet much less volatility? So I'll give you uh, both a generic and a specific answer right. to that. So by having a broader universe, stocks, bonds, and cash equivalents, you can achieve a greater degree of diversification. That's the generic answer. Uh, the other part of it is specifically the techniques that we used in the BlackRock Global Allocation Fund combined both the sort of top-down uh, asset allocation uh, and currency mix that a typical allocation fund would have with bottom-up security selection where we look for securities that can outperform their markets. And so that combination of diversification uh, that helps all very diversified funds, uh, a flexible mix that looks for the best opportunities in the world, uh, and also adding security selection to target individual securities that can bring something special to the portfolio. You put all that together and you get a better risk return trade-off. And, and what, what makes the difference in returns? Because when I've, when I've looked at you, you know, talked over the years to you about the BlackRock Asset Allocation Fund. Uh, you know, at one point you had 700 securities. Yeah. And so, you know, people, a lot of people would look at that and say, well, that's, you know, that you're, you're getting kind of index fund behavior from that if, if you just, you know, bought a, a world index fund or whatever, which you didn't. You yeah. got something quite different. Yeah. But, but, you know, so what really makes the difference in, in, in again, that, that risk return, that balance? So just because you have a large number of securities doesn't mean you're an index. Mm -hmm. It really depends on the particular securities. Right. And so we were able to achieve a broad uh, amount of diversification where the performance of any single security was not going to make or break the performance of the fund. What we were trying to do on a bottom-up security selection basis was add a little bit of value over a lot of securities. Yes. Now. Where we would differ from an index fund is twofold. Number one, those particular securities that we would pick would typically be different names and different weightings than an index might have. But number two, if you looked at our portfolio from the top down, it pretty much never was exactly in line with our overall benchmark index. We would have either asset mix differences, meaning more stocks uh, or more bonds, We'd have currency differences, uh, we'd have geographic differences, and sectoral differences. So even on a, a very broad sort of basis, we would be very different in weighting from uh, a benchmark in uh, the great preponderance of years because the opportunity set varies over time. Let, let me switch topics a little bit. Biggest changes that you've seen uh, in, in, you know, since the 1980s in, an, in the investment environment, what are, what are some of the biggest changes? Well, there have been enormous changes, Consuelo. Uh, the first thing is things are just way bigger. The markets are bigger. There's much more liquidity. There are far more individuals interested in the markets. There are far more uh, professional investors. Uh, also, uh, yields are down, inflation is down, and asset prices are up. 
asset prices are up a whole lot. It's been a lot of fun to be involved in the asset markets uh, over the 28 and a half year history of global allocation. The thing that's perhaps the most striking to me is the availability of information. Back when we started Global Allocation Fund, if we wanted information on an individual company, we made a telephone call or even wrote a letter uh, on paper uh, and sent away a company for its 10K, and we might have gotten it, if we were lucky, by overnight mail, we might have gotten it a week later. Uh, today, uh, a high school student uh, with access to the internet in 10 minutes can get more information on a company than we would get in days back then. Also, so everything's faster, much more information available, quicker to just about everyone, right? Yes. Right. Uh, and that information is not only more available, the techniques for processing it uh, are far uh, more democratized. Uh, they're just distributed to far more people. Uh, the ability to get statistics about a broad range of investments is very, very widespread. And also, the application of uh, financial models and statistical analysis to the financial markets has moved from something that was theoretical and written out in formulas for business schools uh, to something that's ubiquitous. Uh, it's going on all the time on probably millions of computers worldwide. So does all of this make us better investors? Does it have any an impact on the returns that we can get from the markets? So I would say we are certainly better informed okay. investors. The other thing that is a sure thing is costs are way down. If you look at transaction costs in terms of commissions or if you look at management fee rates, uh, they're much lower than they used to be. The other thing is that the ability uh, for individuals to access packages of securities uh, or portfolios of securities uh, such as ETFs, uh, that was very, very limited to non-existent uh, when I started my career. That was an institutional uh, sort of tool. Today, uh, those sorts of packages of securities are widely available at very low cost to individuals. And I, I guess back to my question, I, I, does that mean that we'll get better investment results? Uh, I think we're better informed investors. We can do things more efficiently today. Uh, but the pricing that we face in the securities markets is different. And uh, the good news is it's been a great bull market. The bad news is asset prices are higher these days and prospective returns are probably lower. I'll give you an example. I looked back to when we started the BlackRock Global Allocation Fund in 1989. Back then, a 10-year U.S. Treasury bond yielded a little over 9%. Today, it yields about 2.4%. Back then, the earnings yield, meaning the earnings divided by the price level of the S&P, was about 6.8%. Today, it's 5%. So if you do a little exercise and you create a balanced portfolio, that's 60% S&P and 40% Treasuries. Uh, back then, uh, you had uh, a blended yield of about 7.7%. Today, it's four. Wow. So much lower. It's much lower. It's about half the level that yeah. we started with. 
And there's nothing exactly magic about those numbers, but they do indicate that we should probably expect significantly lower returns over a long period of time looking forward than we've enjoyed over the past 28 and a half years. So significantly lower because then, you know, price matters. Price does matter. A lot. Yes. Right. So significantly lower, what, what's, what should we anticipate? Well, I mean, for instance, a global, you know, allocation fund uh, had you know, I think nearly 10% annualized return since its inception in 1989. Next 20 years, 10 years. So if we take a, a global flexible mutual fund uh, and we start with the premise that I just did with the U.S. numbers, mm -hmm. I think global investing in general over the next decade or so is likely to perform, outperform U.S. investing. Why is that? It's, it's been very good news in the U.S., but our stock market in particular is priced on the expensive side, especially compared to uh, both the emerging markets and the big developed markets. You know, I've been fortunate to talk with you in the past about the Japanese stock market, right. which continues to offer excellent value despite the fact that the Nikkei has gone from uh, under 9,000 to above 22,000 in the time that we've been very positive on it. But both the Japanese market and the European markets uh, look uh, more attractively priced than the U.S. stock market. So if you put together the numbers I mentioned for the U.S. market, you add a little bit for, say, uh, outperforming the market, for using some corporate bonds instead of some treasury bonds, bringing in some global investments, then mid uh, to upper mid single digits, I think, would be a reasonable expectation for a global flexible mutual and, and, fund. And that's a total return basis, dividends reinvested, yes. right, interest yep, payments reinvested. Yes. And a mid to so 5 to 7 percent. I think maybe. that's a reasonable range over right. a very long period of time. Right. In the meantime, uh, you'll have years like this year where uh, a fund is up double digits. You'll have other years which are are below the sorts of numbers we were talking about. Were there any major mistakes that were made when you were running the BlackRock Global Allocation Fund? I mean, you know, looking back, again, getting back to the kind of the lessons learned, any, any mistakes that you learned from? Uh, the major thing that I learned from uh, was about risk management and about uh, the funny things that can happen when there's risk-off behavior in the markets. And the big lesson for me came in 1998 when the correlation on all sorts of securities that didn't seem to have much fundamentally in common, those correlations went shooting up. And so the sort of value-oriented style that we had uh, suffered in 1998 because there was just an abandonment of risky assets across the board. And so remind me what happened in 1998. All the securities started acting the same. Yes. Right? So, so there was no benefit to really to diversification. What happened in 1998 that caused that? Well, it was really a follow-on of the Asia crisis in 1997. And we just had a broad risk-off event mm -hmm. in the autumn of 1998. So everyone, what, fled, you know, they, more risky assets like stocks and corporate credits or high-yield bonds, whatever, and went into, like, U.S. Treasuries yes. and gold or whatever? Yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, and 
So and surprised surprised everyone. Yes. Yeah. And so that was an example where, in the short term, yes, what looked like a very diversified portfolio, because it had a value orientation, uh, and that that value orientation was common. Uh, to a number of securities, uh, a lot of things moved together that we wouldn't have expected to move together. Was there anything that you could have done differently so that you, know, you wouldn't have had that occur over the short term? I think if we had better understood the commonality of risks in our corporate bond portfolio and our stock portfolio, right. we would have done better. Now, uh, we understand that better today, and we have infinitely better risk management capabilities and infinitely better information on risk and the commonalities of risk across the portfolio. Where do I go in a portfolio to avoid a situation like during the financial crisis when you know everyone talked about a correlation of one where mm -hmm. everything again was acting the same except for cash and and US treasuries. Yeah. I mean that was it is is there any other place to go? If, if, if you get a, you know, a severe market correction? There's no free ride in the financial right. markets today. There's no pocket of the market that is safe and offers a high return. Uh, the only truly safe place is cash, and the return there is not going to be very satisfactory. And even that, that popular risk off security, a long-term treasury, uh, today is not priced very attractively, and uh, our sense is uh, that a 10-year Treasury at 2.4% with what we think is a rising inflation rate uh, doesn't offer long-term safety, even if it's helpful in a risk-off event. Let me ask you about the use of technology. What difference does the old-fashioned kind of fundamental analysis make versus the machine? Well, we could do an entire show on this question. Right. But the best way I can describe it is that machines are very fast and they can look at a whole lot of information, but their analytical capabilities today are still not particularly deep when they're looking into an individual situation. People are much slower than machines. They can only focus on a narrow set of information, but people can drill down uh, much deeper in an individual company, and people can assess things qualitatively in ways that machines can't yet. Uh, but what they can't do, uh, as well as humans, is evaluate the panoply of factors that drive an individual security's price. Because some of those factors are unique in time. In other words, the uh, thing that's driving a stock's price uh, could be something general, like its earnings trend. But it could also be something very specific, like the particular company's uh, capital spending uh, plans mm -hmm. and its financing plans and people's concerns about how those match up. That's, that could be looked at uh, by a computer, but it's not going to be able to be richly uh, evaluated in terms of nuance and expectations uh, by a computer. That's a human being's job. How are you investing in retirement? <laughs> uh, more actively. I have fewer restrictions, fewer compliance rules, and uh, it's just easier and quicker. Uh, I'm a value investor. 
now, having said that, I probably have a smaller uh, percentage of my uh, investments in U.S. stocks than I've had in a long time. And I have a greater amount of international exposure, a greater amount of emerging market exposure, and a greater amount of real estate. And, and the reason that is, is because that's where the opportunities are, or you feel because you know, you're no longer in a, a firm that's going to be looking at how you're investing, that you can, you can just be more free form? Well, I have more time to pay attention to things. Okay. Uh, and so real estate takes time. Um, I'm giving that some of my time. And then the international part of it just comes back to what we were talking about before. Price matters. Right. And I like the pricing of non-U.S. stocks generally better than I like the pricing of U.S. stocks. Although there's always something in the U.S. stock market uh, that is unloved and uh, giving people opportunities. So are you using quantitative screens in your personal portfolio or are you, or are you going back to the, the fundamental analysis that you probably started out your career doing or? I, personally, I'm more in the rifle shot, deep dive mm -hmm. individual uh, security approach to right. things than uh, building baskets myself. I do own some ETFs. Mm -hmm. uh, I have some exposure to the Japanese stock market through an ETF because I don't think I personally can add value in selecting stocks in Japan. Right. So is it fun? Are you having fun? Oh, it is a lot of fun. Portfolio? Sure, sure. Yeah. How do you figure out where to invest? I mean, again, as an individual, mm -hmm. how, how are you making that those decisions? Well, uh, first, most individuals uh, should have a fairly broadly diversified portfolio. Uh, most people are not equipped to really rifle shot and outsmart the market on a few investments. So start with diversification and then, uh, I'm a believer, look at price. Human beings are much better at looking at the price of something and assessing what they get for it than they are at predicting the future. Futures pull really full of surprises. And today, uh, we have a deck of asset prices that, as we talked earlier, is uh, more expensive uh, than it was uh, when we started global allocation. Fund. Right. And so bonds yield less. And the P.E. ratios on stocks are higher, the dividend yields are lower. I'd look around the world for where the most attractive uh, stock markets are. And they would be Japan, Europe, the emerging markets. Doesn't mean that I'd avoid the U.S. I would just have less exposure to the U.S. than I have typically had over time. I'd also have less exposure to bonds than I might typically have over time. One investment for long-term diversified portfolio, what should we all own some of in a diversified portfolio? The two things that I would mention yes. are, uh, first, uh, Japanese equities. Mm -hmm. uh, they have been four years and continue to be uh, a good opportunity, despite the fact the market has done very well. Uh, the second thing is um, emerging market equities are priced reasonably, and there's got to be growth in the emerging markets uh, for long-term investors. If you look at where the workforce in the world is going to grow, it's in the emerging markets. And the two big components of economic growth are productivity and workforce growth. And you add that 
to a, a growth in the consumer uh, parts of the emerging world. And I think you have the formula for uh, long-term economic growth. And today, you can buy emerging market equities at reasonable prices. We're going to leave it there. Dennis Statman, Good. thank you so much for joining us on Wealth Track. It's been a pleasure. At the close of every Wealth Track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. In this case, Morningstar's widely used five-star rating system for mutual funds. A recent Wall Street Journal cover story about Morningstar's mutual fund ratings not being what they seem has caused quite a stir. The journal's conclusion that Morningstar's top-ranked funds over three- to five-year periods rarely sustain high performance over the next three to five years should not be a surprise to anyone. Funds like markets go through periods of reversion to the mean. The star rating system is helpful as a snapshot of recent risk-adjusted performance, good and bad, versus the market and competitors. It is not a predictor of future performance, but it can be a useful place to start much more extensive research about fund strategies, styles, culture, management, expenses, and yes, past performance versus the market and competitors. Next week, the importance of being flexible and global with Eaton Vance's wide-ranging bond fund manager, Kathleen Gaffney. To hear more of our conversation with great investor Dennis Statman, go to our website and click on the extra feature and tell us what's on your mind on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective. Ku and Patricia Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences. Rosalind P. Walter and the Fairholme Foundation.